So we can look around us and without any generational animosity, I want to leave that out, but I can look at the boomers around and I can say, you have nothing I want to pass on to my kids. Maybe, maybe as individuals you do, but not as a generation. I'm going to have to man up and do better. I don't need your uh, blessing. I would love it, but I need to find what is life-giving. This is the Heath in Pursuit podcast with Heath Hollinsby. Each week, we'll have a conversation with various folks who are actively engaged in the pursuit of truth. This is a show where anything can be discussed, and probably will. A podcast for the seekers, the dreamers, the restless, the hurt, and the broken. This is a podcast for you. Welcome to Heath in Pursuit. Thank you, James, and welcome to another edition of Heath in Pursuit. I'm Heath Hollinsby, and I will be the, I don't know, the curator of curiosity for the next hour. Uh, today's guest is Paul J. Pastor. Uh, it's really important to get that J in there. And um, he has a new book out called The Face of the Deep. And I'm going to read you his bio, and then I'm going to tell you a thought I have that I want to encourage you maybe who might be prone to jump to stick around, and then we'll get into the conversation. So Paul is a writer, and he's an editor living just outside of Portland, Oregon. His writings on spirituality and culture blend a love of the Christian scriptures with wide-ranging interest in both literature and ecology and philosophy and art and unique intimacy with the natural world. His work engages timeless ideas that speak boldly to the wounds and possibilities of our age. Paul's writing is widely recognized for its beauty and depth, and he has won many awards, including from the Maggie Awards, the Evangelical Press Association, and the Christian Book Association. His new book, The Face of the Deep, was absolutely incredible. I read it last week. And I will say that for many who um, appreciate the diversity of thought that this show uh, provides, this one will be um, this will be an interesting one. This will be a fun one. This will be one that people... Um, who have a familiar history in evangelical North American evangelical Christianity, I would say some of the stuff might be common, but um, Paul is able to write this in a beautiful way. And I'm never afraid to have about having a conversation. And so uh, I'm super excited to, to talk about the face of the deep. Just got a fresh cup of coffee poured and I'm ready to have a good conversation. So Paul, thank you so much for being uh, on Heath and Pursuit today. Heath, it's fantastic to be here. Yeah, man. I uh, ju- I just got done finished reading your book, um, which was really awesome because it's just recently come out and and uh, The Face of the Deep, I love the story at the beginning. We'll get into all that. But, um, you know, a lot of people that listen to the show really do value that I'm constantly kind of dancing into a bunch of different worlds of seeking questions uh, from people who have truth that might think differently than me. And uh, the Trinity that aspect of your book that was so strong in your book um, was really, really, really fascinating because self-admittedly, the Trinity is one of those things that like I pretend that I know a decent amount about to kind of get through conversation, but uh, practically it didn't ever really connect dots to me. I, I could never make sense about it. And uh, And I love the way that you talk about the Trinity because... It's a mind-blowing concept, but you present it in a really unique way. You say mm. that many of us are accustomed to thinking of the Trinity as like this interesting theological accessory, like the observation of a great whale that, while interesting to cetologists, people who study whales, have actually little bearing for land dwellers. And perhaps we think discussion on the triune nature of God, while interesting to the theologians, those who study the nature of God, have little to do with spiritual life of humans. And I'm kind of curious, how do we get to a better understanding of the idea of this Trinity, uh, holding it less as a concept to have to nail perfectly, like theologically or academically, and more of a way of seeing the triune nature of God, this Father, Son, Holy Spirit, as a beautiful, uh, a beautiful concept? Mm, quite a great question, Heath. Well, it really strikes to the core of the book, which is sort of this paradoxical dealing with theology. Like in many mm. Christian spaces, we talk about theology as sheerly uh, a rational endeavor. It's something we think about to uh, more effectively do something else like preach or teach or believe or keep our faith or sure. refine our faith or deconstruct, reconstruct. Uh, we're doing things with theology. And I think that has its place, but um, you know the human body has three different 
segments that have neural networks, uh, which is really our way of processing information and knowing, right? And we think about okay. the brain, obviously, as the key, right? The brain sure. has tons of neural networks, but the heart has neurons too. And our gut has neurons as well. And I think of mm -hmm. these three domains of knowing, uh, feeling, and yearning as ways that we can know and do theology too. So the book in general engages with this whole thing, the theology of the spirit, the theology of the Trinity, not just as a rational endeavor meant to stay rational, but mm. something that can be felt and loved and something that can be ached for and yearned for and known in sort of this wordless way. So in regards to the Trinity, you know, we can have all of our doctrine right uh, in terms of historic Christian orthodoxy or sure. whatever um, Trinitarian inquiry we're doing and miss the entire point of it, which is mm -hmm. relationality. The whole point of the Trinity is that at the very core of um, what we call the Godhead, which is yep. this unique divine organism beyond time, beyond space, from whom all things come, to whom all things return, yeah. that God is, is relatable, is knowable, and mm. actually has relationality in the very core of of the divine person and the divine being. So the yeah. Holy Spirit in traditional theology is the breath of is the breath, the breath of love that arises between the Father and the Son as they love each other. Mm. And that image, um, and it really is an image, you have to visualize it in order to begin understanding it at all. Sure. Is so beautiful because if the story of historic Christian theology is true we as human beings are made that same way. We've been crafted as an echo of that image, small and imperfect, of course, but still recognizable. Um, sure. Just like the small branches of a tree might mimic, might mimic the, the shape of the whole tree, yeah. we are like that with God. And so that relationality is more than just uh, a doctrinal construct. It's more than something to argue about or proof text for. It is something mm. to know not only in your brain, but in your heart, where you can yeah. love that and love through that, and in your very guts, mm. where that points you to a deeper rootedness spiritually and a yeah. deeper yearning for what you were made for, which is knowing and being known, welcoming and being welcomed, yeah. loving and being beloved. Mm, that's so good. And you know, as you're talking it instantly brought up something that I appreciate about you. Uh, we were introduced by a mutual friend Proctor, Stephen Proctor, and instantly, as soon as Love I saw Stephen, hi Stephen. <laughs> I don't think he's ever listened let's, to an let's episode. Wave. So come on, Stephen, listen. Let's in. wave at Stephen. I'm <laughs> waving at you, Stephen. You're going to listen to this. All right, go on. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, but like, you know, I was telling you even even offline, following your your Twitter feed, it only took about thirty seconds to go. Yeah, this guy's a this guy's a a voice of light in the darkness and peace in the chaos and. Um, even the way you talk about the Trinity, I, I appreciate because um, the more I travel outside of the U.S. and the more I get familiar with people who are not necessarily uh, Western theologians, the more there is a a view of some of these things that we've come to take so seriously in the Western church um, mm. as you have to get this exactly right or you're going to burn forever and so, like, I'm even scared to take on the Trinity, whereas a lot of Eastern thinkers tend to see some of these ideologies almost as playful, as, mm. you know, like, as, as living in, as living objects that have position and place and space that play with each other mm. versus, versus a complex calculus problem that we got to figure out how to explain the three and one. And I've been to so many seminars that, you know, we're going to teach the Trinity, and I've never heard the Trinity expanded this way before and it's just beautiful hearing a fresh breath that you've taken on it and mm. gone this isn't necessarily a mm. math problem to figure out this is a relationship to study this is a relationship to enter into to observe you know what i mean mm. i'm so really glad to that. hear you say that because historic christianity uh has such remarkable resources for the whole person the whole christian mm. person body yeah. mind soul uh culture art, like there's no aspect of human endeavor or love that it doesn't resource richly, but we've yeah. become so out of touch 
touch with that today. And a lot of it is cultural. Yep. Um, you know, we're sort of in this little back eddy, especially here in the States of Protestant uh, fundamental slash evangelical theology that has some great mm-hmm. gifts to offer that wider tradition, especially as it, re- as it relates to the Bible and personal engagement with the Bible, which is wonderful. I'm a Bible sure. guy. I love that kind of thing. But the roots often are cut off and we we forget as a culture what it means like what it means to live in a christian way within mm. our bodies within our hearts within the ecosystem of the natural world and so part of my passion is to return really traditional folk wisdom frankly that has been falsely relegated to pagan folk religion or to Mm. superstition or to whatever to reclaim that in the name of jesus and say look this integration with the natural world is your christian inheritance remember it and and one of the key links there is the spirit because the doctrines of the spirit that are better remembered in the east especially in the orthodox church Mm -hmm. but that are still ours in the west for both roman catholics and for protestants it's the doctrine of the spirit's presence and active work the renewal and sustaining work that Mm. sanctifies in this really beautiful whole cosmos vision how the spirit of christ extends to the entire creation in love and in welcome and in growth and Mm. we're welcomed into that that's 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 part and parcel of what our work here is as individuals is to join what Christ is doing, not just to fix the problems of sin and fallenness, although that's important, but to make sure. new things, to grow in new directions. And that mm-hmm. embrace of, of holistic, really remembrance of what I think our souls know deep yeah. down yep. is so much of what this book is about. You know, um, I, one of the things that I've always had an issue with, uh, and this is a bit of a hardball question right out of the gate, and I apologize because I typically try to butter up the guests. Bring before it. I... <laughs> so, uh, butter. <laughs> you mention in your book that the implication of the one God who exists as a unified three is this, that from before time itself existed, relationship did. And the love of the Father, the Son, and Spirit, joy has existed from eternity past. Admiration existed, pleasure existed, kindness and gentleness and wisdom existed. And one thing that I've always had a hard time wrestling through is, and and I mean, my, my whole theological view of, of atonement theory is is kind of in a blender right now. So um, one thing that I've, I've had a hard time wrestling through in the past is how is this unity, this relationship that sounds so beautiful, how does this exist in the father slash son wrath appeasement situation that's happening at the cross? Do you have any insight into that? Because I've never been able to make sense of that. Because I've always heard the Trinity is this relationship that's always out showing honor to one another and putting each other first. And then it seems like if you're going to hold a an atonement view that is uh that is a price that is demanding someone else's yeah. innocence death does it does the yeah. trinity separate on this point does the father really turn his back is it are we reading this thing maybe wrong well it's awfully far above my pay grade I'm far <laughs> far smarter people than i have wrestled with this uh, and spilled much ink over this and so um mm. i can only offer my own personal perspective but sure. Uh, but two things I would bring up. One is that our metaphors for sin are what determine what we see happening at the cross, right? So, mm-hmm. and I talk about this in the face of the deep. If your metaphor for sin is uh, law breaking, then what you see happening at the cross is a judicial exchange. If your okay. metaphor for sin is sickness, then what you see happening at the cross is healing. If your metaphor for sin is oppression and domination by the powers of uh, the enemy, so to speak, what you see happening at the cross is Christus Victor. It's victory, it's deliverance. And so it's all metaphorical. And the Bible uses all those metaphors. Paul is clear that there was a judicial exchange throughout the throughout Paul. We see this, right? But especially (laughs) in Anglo-centric, especially in Anglo-centric cultures, right? I'm not gonna say like white cultures, because Sure. My ethnic background's Hungarian and we don't share, it's an Eastern oh, wow. culture. We don't share that. Um, a lot of the Anglo-centric stuff that, that the British exported to the world, but especially in Anglo-centric cultures where the judge is such, and the judge and the king are really the key repositories of power, right? Sure. Um, 
we see that as wrath. We see that as judgment. We see that as a sentence and we back read our culture, our Anglo-centric culture back onto the pages of a totally, totally foreign mm. uh, book to that culture. Yeah. And it's not that it doesn't fit because it partway fits. It just doesn't entirely fit. So my, hmm. my encouragement would be examine your metaphors. What are, what are the full set of metaphors that scripture and historic theology uses for what's happening at the cross? And how do you hold those together so that okay. they complement each other rather than undercut one another? So that's, that's the oh, way that I would good. encourage you to approach it. For me personally, though, I almost see what's happening at the cross. Uh, well, I do see what's happening at the cross as a ritual, um, much mm. like Abraham and Isaac, except in this case, it's carried through physically. But I see God the Father and I see Christ the Son. Uh, and this is hard to explain, but they're taking on ritual actions. Okay. Um, they're, they're, in a sense, becoming actors, not only doing something, but performing something. They're performing certain roles in that space. And in that role, just like if I was to act out a passion play, say with my son, um, sure. you know, I have two beloved sons and a beloved daughter of my own. Say I grab my son Emmaus and I say, okay, we are acting out um, for our community, a passion play. Hmm. I am going to have to be scary. I'm going to have to yell. I'm going to have to act like I'm even going to hurt you, but it's all in the play. It's hmm. all in the play. It has to be done. Uh -huh. This is the ritual, but it's all in the play. Yeah. And personally, and I, I can't point to any specific verse or, or anything, but that's what I see happening at the cross. The father mm. has to yell. Yep. Sin demands yelling. It does. It demands getting mad. Sure. It, demands, it demands restitution. Good yep. grief. Just read the news. Does not God, yeah. does not the blood of innocent people cry out? And someone has to yell. The great judge, the great king has to yell about that. Hmm. And yet the son can also take the place in this, in this ritual action. Sure. So did Christ really die? Yes. Was there really things that happened? Yes. But I see it as enacting these fascinating roles. And of course, the spirit is present on both sides of this, mm -hmm. existing and maintaining that relationship. There's no break in the Trinity here. Yeah, um, that's good. That's a different perspective, anyway, man. That, that's that's well, a, deep, you, a deep dive, but you asked for a, it. <laughs> it's a, the face of the deep dive. <laughs> the, uh, you know, yeah. it's, it's something that's, that, that takes this concept and makes it beautiful. It's less of a math problem and more of a, more of a, you know, there's meaning and there's layers and there's, potential of what was happening and mm -hmm. and um and one of the things that you talk quite a bit about is the the act of creating uh, the act of making mm -hmm. and creating things mm -hmm. and that absolutely uh, culture is actually developed out of this in fact you mentioned that it's sometimes easy to get caught up in the making uh that we don't much think about the meaning of the making and i'm wondering if you can unpack mm -hmm. this a bit more for those who might not be familiar with this kind of uh concept mm -hmm. Well, it's easy in our day-to-day -day lives, no matter what it is that we do to create, whether it's making books or making podcasts, whether it's making sure. dinner, whether you're a stay-at-home parent, uh, a knowledge worker, a street sweeper, a farmer, whatever. It's easy just because of the pressures of human life to just mm -hmm. go through the motions and forget what you're actually doing. Um, and if we can extend uh, for the purposes of this conversation, maybe that same ritual action, we're, mm -hmm. we are embodying these kind of archetypal energies throughout our days, right? Like yeah. there's a sense in which the work that we do is always larger than ourself. It's always sanctified mm. um, by something human. And then also by something, if you're a Christian, I believe by something divine, you're, you're sure. welcoming certain types of work into the activity of the body of Christ. Christ is doing yeah. things through you, the specific actions of your day. Hmm. And that connection is founded in the Holy Spirit. Um, and it means that from my perspective, through awareness and through consecration of our work and creation to God and to the mm. expanding purposes of the body of Jesus, we get to uh, turn the washing of dishes from a mundane chore into a symbolic ritual act that consecrates ourself and consecrates in whatever small way a portion mm. of the world to Christ by means of the spirit. And that is endlessly fascinating to me. It is mm. such, um, it, it brings such dignity to human work. It brings such dignity to 
all aspects of endeavor that we can do. It's it's sure. rich and it's embodied and it's wild. Um, and that's the meaning of the making. We are acting in our yeah. small ways as Christ would if we embrace yeah. our life in the spirit at the key junctures of anything, whether it's doing the dishes or mowing the lawn or leading yeah. nations. It's all holy. Um, yeah. If I we agree. ask. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, there's so many people that would say like, oh, well, I'm not a creative. I'm not. And it's like, no, everybody is making and creating all the time, right? Like hmm. you're making dinner, you're throwing some ingredients together that were left in your fridge that you got to figure out what to do with before they go bad like that. It's a creative endeavor. It's an artistry. Yeah. You raising kids, you formulating uh, ideologies and foundational thoughts in them from a young age and developing them and, and helping in their maturity as they grow. That's a making of things. That's a creating of yeah. things. And so I absolutely agree. Uh, as a brief thing though, I do think that there's great danger in the fact that we basically need to, we need to, make those acts of creation consecrated because there's also mm. the opportunity to take something that ostensibly is holy or creative, like making a book or making a painting or giving a lifetime as a pastor of a church. And you can take that holy thing and you can kill it. Sure. You can take all the life out of it. And so, sure. so much of it is this recursive thing of, is there breath metaphorically speaking, is there breath in my action? Is there spirit mm. in my action? Is there this connection to the larger meaning? And I can't always point to when or why that does or doesn't happen. Often we experience that pretty intuitively, sure. but you know it when, when it's there. And that is part of what I think is it means to experience the beautiful mystery of life with the spirit is yeah. that sense of extension. You are extending God's work into the world mm. um, by means of your awareness and your consecration through the spirit of Jesus. So good, man. You know, one thing that, uh, one thing you talk about is prophets and I've always loved the prophets and I would, I'm a self-proclaimed one. Uh, I don't know if prophets get to self-proclaim <laughs> that or if that's more something that people go like, oh yeah, that guy's a prophet. Uh, but I've always been fascinated by the prophets and the way that they're able to speak to power and speak to mm empire and they're able to represent a mouthpiece of God. And oftentimes they were uh, awkward or unconventional <laughs> in their methods. And uh, such kind uh, words. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> trying to be nice to them. And uh, yeah, but you have a whole chapter. Way devoted. more than awkward. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like, I God told me to do this. Like, well, go for it. He's a, he had you do some totally. weird stuff. But you have a whole book or a whole chapter called The Power of the Prophets. And I'm curious how you would define a prophet in today's language. And what are the traits mm. of prophets among us? What are they speaking to? What are they acknowledging? How are they influencing the world towards a more beautiful, meaningful place and planet where justice lives? Mm. And are there any prophets yeah. today that you just go, these are... Because I asked a buddy the other day, I said, who do you think is a prophet that we're going to look back in 200 years and go, that was a, and his response caught me off guard because I hadn't given it thought. And he said to Colin Kaepernick. And I thought, well, that's fascinating. Uh, it's, you know, it's his take, but who, you, do you see any prophets among us? What are they speaking to? How, how do we, how do we tell who these people are? That's a big question. Um, to, I'll answer <laughs> the second part of your question first, and then I'll go to the first, to the, to the first sure. part of it. Um, I, I do not feel qualified to point out any modern prophets. I think there mm. are people whose work is prophetic, but one of the things about a prophet is, um, you, they're just rarely recognized. And, and I don't think we really have any who are speaking today, um, as recognizable mm. inheritors of what was happening in the Old Testament. Okay. So there are certainly people whose whose ministries are profoundly prophetic, such as uh, Martin Luther King Jr., Oscar Romero, uh, you know, multiple voices of, of that caliber whose work is characterized by speaking the truth to power over mm. and against oppressive systems, oppressive people. Uh, it's really the spirit's extension of revolutionary work and act, right? Sure. Um, but the prophetic gift, um, obviously, we often use that to foretell the future. Sometimes in the Bible that happens, but it's certainly not as often as we like. Much more often, though, it's simply saying things as they are. And that is hmm. um, 
when it's in the context of wrongness, societal wrongness, uh, especially cultural wrongness, religious sure. wrongness, um, when you say things as they are, people get angry, they get mad. And um, so if you were just to say, boil it down, Paul, I would say that's, that's what a prophet is. A prophet is somebody who says it like it is, but does so uh, in this sort of holier ritual way, representing God's representing God to the people. It, in many mm. ways, it's the opposite of a priest. The priest represents the people to God. It's as if sure. a nation or a tribe or a culture all focuses down briefly into one person who embodies the supplication and worship or ritual actions of a people before God. And it's very holy and, and, and very heavy. And mm. um, it's obviously a, a key uh, metaphor in the Old Testament, and it's extended into Hebrews, the book of Hebrews as well. But mm. the prophets um, are the opposite of that. It's where God has a spokesman now representing uh, the the better way to the people. Yeah. And so as I look around, in a specific sense, anybody who's calling things like they are with that sense of consecration um, mm. and confidence is is standing in a prophet's role. Um, is it different than the Old Testament? Yes, I, I actually really believe that it is, but they're doing prophetic work. And that's yeah. and that's part of the key um, that I wanted to highlight in that chapter. Yeah, you did a great job. And one of the things, even as you were just talking, I was thinking through is, I wonder if that's the rub that I feel when I see so many people. Um, so a crowd that I'm really fascinated by is the ex-evangelical crowd. Um, mm. And... I do think there are so many prophetic words being uttered to the church through them, but it does tend to lack, um, from what I've seen, this this motivation of consecration. And I wonder if that's like a dividing line, because anyone can go in and rip a car engine apart. But the true joy, I mean, deconstruction's fun for a few minutes, right? And then you, like the real fun's <laughs> rebuilding it. And so I almost wonder if there's a sense of yeah, we can go in and lob missiles at the thing that we feel has hurt us and just keep launching missiles as we walk away, or we can actually fight for this thing. And uh, mm. and so I almost wonder as you're talking, that consecration idea motivated by by this this uh, energetic fueling of of justice and, and what is intended to be and what could be is, mm. is something that paints a pro prophet away f differently than maybe somebody who's just like a nagging voice calling out what they think is the issue. Um, mm. Just something I'm kind of processing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. I, so I, I don't have a lot to say about that, but it, it is really interesting to think about um, the relationship between breaking things down and then mm -hmm. uh, building them back up again. Yeah. I think that's valid. It's a fun endeavor. I mean, we, like it's, that's a childish, uh, like instinct in us. I mean, how many times did you have, you know, Legos and you build this castle and you tear it down and you rebuild it and you make something new or you build a sand, sand castle on the beach and just the water comes in and destroys it yeah. and you start over. There's well, a, there's a I, childlike I do, nature in that. I do think of it a bit like compost, right? Like compost is as rich as it is because of the breakdown of organic structures because of death, right? Mm. So death happens and then death eventually transforms from um, a really a really off-putting scenario into compost back into soil mm. where all of the raw materials that made up bodies previously are now available to make new bodies. And so, um, I, there are organisms like organi organizations, I can't talk today and organisms whose sole <laughs> job is to break things down. Um, and so maybe in the ecosystem of faith, we do need people who do nothing except, um, tear stuff up. Yeah, uh, I can see the ecological benefit of that spiritually, but mm. we need the tap roots. We need the oak seeds and the acorns that are able to be pressed down into that soil uh, and really grow something new. Yeah, um, yeah we could follow that metaphor for a long I time. I love it. Yeah, let's keep going. Yeah. Hey, so, yeah, you mentioned that... Um, Today, living over 2,000 years after the closing of the Bible's canon, we find it easy to backread two millennia of Christian theology into the Bible, particularly mm. older sections of the Bible, such as Isaiah. We forget that some things made clear to us after Christ's ascension and the founding of the church seem to have been mysteries in the ages that preceded us. And mm. when you wrote that, 
as I read it, it just like is like cardiac arrest for my attention. And it said, I'm certain that this has so much more of a profound impact on us than we'd actually recognize on first glance or give much attention to. Mm. And so I'm curious, living on this side of the resurrection, like what advantages and disadvantages do you see when it comes to like the opening or the unveiling of these mysteries that we might now see that people before us didn't? Are there, you know, like kind of what are your thoughts on that whole thing? Yeah, I should I should stress that in that particular passage, I'm talking specifically about the Bible. So, um, you know, going back to Isaiah with Christian eyes is very different than reading it with Jewish eyes, right? And all of a sure. sudden, everything pops because we have this figure, Jesus of Nazareth, uh, whom we count as the Messiah, the the Christ, the Anointed. We have this figure in our minds that we're that we're constantly reading and finding, mm. um, and I think justifiably so back in ways that er, the original readers of that text simply would not or could not have uh, sure. simply because they, they didn't have the, the history or the story or the narrative that we have now. Uh, but the humility, I, I guess the point that I wrote, um, the point, the reason behind writing that is humility. We need to approach mm. the text with uh, a real sense of humility and human compassion, not just for people who have read the text differently than we have before us, although I think that's very important, uh, but also um, being being very careful and aware of, in some senses, the privilege of being a um, late historical reader, right? Like sure. We, we look backwards with certain perspectives that we have now. But also um, not falling victim to what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery, right? Okay. Where this there's this idea that uh, history is just progressing. We're on this gentle upward curve. Now we just know more. So mm. um, I suppose what I'm advocating is a sort of intellectual and historical compassion uh, that leads to the humble listening to voices before us, sure. trying to think about how early readers would encounter these texts, uh, mm. trying to engage with that sense of mystery that would have been present, the cryptic nature of these texts, which right. is really a big part of where that that comes from. Uh, and ultimately believing that our ancestors were not, <laughs> were not dumb, um, our physical mm. and genetic and uh, historical ancestors were not fools. They were wise people and yeah. in many ways far wiser than we are today. And so my fear is that if we begin dismissing previous generations um, because of knowledge that we have or just feel that we have now, sure. we're in danger of missing out some of the treasure that they've left for us along the way, intentionally and unintentionally yeah. because of our hubris. So that passage mm. is intended just to prompt humility, intellectual humility. Are you um, strong enough as a person to be able to move backwards and forwards in intellectual time yeah. and engage ideas and concepts and language and images on their own merits rather than mm. reading everything through the lens that we so proudly carry about today with us as enlightened readers in the year 2020? Sure. Well, we, we would seem barbarians to many people uh, throughout yeah. the historical world. Um, and yeah, you're in right. many ways we are. Oh, that's such a good point. Thanks for, thanks for unpacking that a bit. There's, a, there's another concept that you talk about that I'd love for you to unpack because it's one that I've heard and I think it's in one of the creeds even and I've always said it and I'm like, yeah, I don't know if I, I, I haven't given it some intellectual honesty yet. And it's the idea of um, the sustaining of all things. So you say that one of the most beautiful works of the Holy Spirit, whom Abraham Kuyper called them one omnipotent worker of all life and quickening, is the sustaining of the world. Like he made all things, but both the Old and New Testaments clearly teach that he sustains all things too. And I've never understood the idea of the concept of sustaining still in a literal way. And I know this is often a concept that, that I get into with people, and I've never found a super persuading argument to this, but maybe you can help me understand the sustaining nature of 
what the Holy Spirit is doing? You know, I th- in terms of the sustaining of the Holy Spirit, I think it's really easy for us to go straight to the physical because we have a very modern worldview about how the world is made, right? Like okay. basically, if you were a Western citizen born after the Enlightenment, you have a fundamentally materialist view of the world. You think that the um, you know, the things are things, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and even in Christianity, that uh, eventually resulted in the common bifurcation of reality. We think about earth as being totally separate from heaven. Mm-hmm. We think of spiritual things being totally separate from physical things. And that in the sweep of history is a minority view. Sure. Um, we were talking about that intellectual barbarism, right? That our ancestors might view us with. And for most of human history, whether you come from um, a more tribal or shamanic culture all the way through to, you know, the, the Platonic philosophy of the Greeks, there was this understanding that everything you see in the world is rooted in something beyond it. Hmm. Um, uh, And this is what a lot of the myths of world cultures are expressing in poetic terms or story terms is the fact that reality is never just reality. It's Mm. roots or it's um, the most, the thing that makes it real extends back beyond what is seen into something that is unseen. Mm. So this worldview is what shaped um, the various writers of the various cultures who wrote the Bible and carried Christian theology throughout the early centuries up until uh, really the Reformation and the Enlightenment, right? Mm. This idea that, and, and Paul's language throughout the New Testament is really key on this, things that are seen and things that are unseen. Yeah. And so the sustaining work of the Spirit is, from my perspective, the link that holds that system together. Mm. I actually believe quite strongly in the efficacy of that. Uh, I do believe that the physical world that we live in, this material world, has its roots in unseen realities. And I don't know or, you know, I'm not able to trace exactly how that works, Hmm. but I do believe that the meaning of things, like what's the meaning of a tree? Is it something more than a collection of atoms? Yes. Can it mean anything? No. Does it mean something Yes. Hmm. Um, I can inquire about that meaning, but, and we're getting awfully abstract here, but the thing that gives it its meaning, that carries its meaning forward, uh, is the spirit of God in Christian theology, the Hmm. spirit of life that that allows this thing to be. Paul on Mars Hill uh, quotes, uh, I believe, Epimenides of Crete when he says, um, in him, meaning in God, we live and move and have our being. And so there's this sense in which when we interact in the physical world, it's so much more than just material stuff interacting with material stuff. And I don't exactly know how that's all held together, but that's the image that it's held and sustained Hmm. and it's made to, to not only be in the first place, but to continue being by the active presence of the spirit. So going back to that relationality that we talked about earlier, that's present in the Trinity, that relationality and closeness and presence extends to all of creation. And, Mm. um, and I really don't understand how it all works, but I can (laughs) experience it. And that's, I think what so much of this book is about, you know, it's like trying to name something that you can't in any way fully encompass, but you get these flashes of it from time to time. And that closeness with God that many people experience, even from outside the Christian tradition, when they walk outside and encounter some sort of presence in nature that they can't fully name, but that they can know. Yeah. Christian theology says, yes, you're right. Absolutely. Nature is haunted by the spirit. It's filled by the spirit. It's sustained by the spirit. Uh, We have language for that. We have holy, um, holy language for that. Hmm. And that sense of encounter makes simple living an act of worship. Um, And that's where I think a lot of the importance of this comes in because we really can touch God um, in that sense of, uh, of reaching to the spiritual through the physical mm. by interacting with the holy world that he has not only made, but that he sustains and continues to be intimately present with. Yeah. Does that help at all? Yeah, it helps a ton. 
Absolutely. You know, I'm, and it kind of leads me to the, the question, like, I mean, I, I've got my third book out, I'm writing my fourth, and I know how hard it is to go in and actually write a book and to sit down and to process this out. And so hmm. it takes a lot of drive and tenacity. And I'm curious, um, why this topic? Like, why the hmm. spirit? Why the, the face of the deep? Because you could have written on a million things. Obviously, you're you're a great thinker, and and the way you see the world is super helpful to me. Hmm. Why why this topic? Like, hmm. where do Christians lack a healthy description of the spirit? Um, what would you hope people like? Yeah, convince us. Like, I mean, what, what gave you the feel to do this? Yeah, I yeah. You know, my personal story is so deeply wrapped up in this. And and it's a lot of why the book is positioned as it is, like as a series of 14 creative nonfiction essays, essentially, like sure. Basil the Great meets Annie Dillard is sort of the, <laughs> the juxtaposition I was going for here. And there's personal narrative and there's, you know, random musings and thoughts and mm. you know, all this different stuff mixed in with uh, the theology too. Um, you know, a key driving factor in my inquiry here was the distance I felt between Christian, like at least popular Christian theology and life and the richness of life um, that mm-hmm. I encounter in nature. I, I grew up in a pretty non-traditional way. Uh, I was a kid in rural Oregon, um, in many ways had a very lonely growing up, um, sort of a countercultural growing up. Okay. Um, it's a story for a different time, but I spent a lot of time with books and in the woods Mm. Um, just encountering God in both places in these really surprising and intimate ways. And the richness that I felt, um, there in like the stacks of the public library and in the cathedral of the forests, um, felt so much deeper than the hollowness that I often encountered in these kind of whipped up Christian acts of worship. It's not that Mm. what was happening in church uh, or in my theology classes wasn't real. It's just that it was one dimensional. It was yep. so thin. Um, and I wanted to be able to hold both and mm. bring both together. And the only way I knew how to do that was through the spirit, uh, because this is where, at least in Christian theology, we branch out from sort of the divine from above revelation you know, descending from the heavens on stone tablets or sure. being handed down at the writings of the apostles. <laughs> not that that stuff's not real. I think it is. It's just kind of heavy and it's kind of stuffy. Sure. Um, and the life that I breathed, the presence that I felt mm. was the opposite of heavy or stuffy. It was all things youthful and eternal and wild and glorious and dangerous and good and frustrating and um, mm. above all things beautiful and mysterious and hmm. uh, and the spirit was the link so that's good man uh, yeah that that's why i i wanted to follow that thread and um you've done a great job with it for sure yeah yeah because well, cause even reading your book i go like man this the way you talk about the bible which to me is just i don't know if it's just familiarity breeds contempt or if it was just i got uh, the one dimensional like that definition that you just said was yeah it just instantly sums up like a Mm. thousand words I wanted to put together and I couldn't figure out. But your book Mm. goes like, no, here's a concept. And I'm going to show you that any aspect of this can be beautiful. You just tell you, Mm. it's how you phrase it, how you, it feels like your, your book actually has like this breath breathed into it Mm. of creativity and lightness and playfulness that, Mm. that is necessary. Mm. But there's also really hard to, I worked really hard to marry the form with the function there. And so I'm glad that came through. Oh, it's, it's completely obvious, you know, but not everything's, you know, not everything in Christian faith is, is, uh, peonies and roses, as they say, um, you talk about the wilderness as well. And Mm. in fact, you say that the wilderness is a place of contradictions, a place portrayed in scriptures, an empty place yet full. Mm. The wilderness is cruel and bare, yet a setting for kindness and miraculous provision, the wilderness reveals things often obscuring them by obscuring them. The wilderness welcomes God and the people of God by sometimes concretely, sometimes extractly meeting evil. And I'm not sure if this is how I was raised or if it's an American thing or what, but there's this sense that God doesn't want us to have hard times, that God doesn't want us to, that there's no desert in the relationship with humans mm-hmm. and God. And, 
Um, and I assume there's some lingering prosperity gospel that that provides fodder to this, uh, or maybe it's just the American air that we breathe. But I'm curious, why is this such a foreign concept for mm. so many people to uh, be familiar with and open up mm. to, and maybe even welcome? Because we don't have elders in our culture, we just have olders. <laughs> That's mm. what I would say. So you look at any culture, uh, what Bill Plotkin would call intact nature-based cultures around the world. And this includes the ancient Hebrews, and to a large degree, it also includes the classical cultures of the Greeks and Romans that shaped uh, much of the New Testament culture too. You look at any of those cultures, and human life is founded around a series of initiations. Um, For example, a bar mitzvah is an initiation, but Mm -hmm. there are other initiations that uh, are you know, pan-cultural in the human soul that we've largely lost. And this is, you know, moments in a young or younger person's life, usually at the beginning of early adulthood and then at the beginning of middle adulthood, in which the elders of the tribe, which are individuals who have been initiated themselves, recognize signs of, um, of growth in somebody and they separate them. They put Mm. them through typically a series of ritual ordeals that are intended, strategically intended to bring out the true nature of that person's soul, right? Mm. So the wilderness, whether it's uh, the vision fast and the vision quest of many uh, Native American cultures, uh, whether it's a certain mutual friend of ours spending 40 days in the wilderness, tempted day and night, surrounded sure. by wild beasts in the book of Mark. I'm referring to Christ, of course. <laughs> um, right? Like yeah. that's an initiation. Um, there's, yep. always this, there's always this sense where you can only be clarified by difficulty. Yeah. There's something that happens in the human soul that doesn't happen any other way. And in our culture, we have lost our elders. We hmm. really have. Older people in our culture are not guaranteed to be wiser than you or I, to be stronger than you or I, sure. to be more insightful than you or I. They've lived more years, but in many cases, they have not been initiated. Symbolically, they do not know their own name. They can't tell you the underlying image or story that shapes and guides them. They're lost. Hmm. They're consumers. They exist to breed and eat and produce. And as a result, we have a culture that is uh, anchorless and rudderless. It's getting bigger and bigger, but it can't steer. And it can't tell the people on board it why they're there, Hmm. what they're intended to do, or how to find their own name. Mm. So people like myself, who happen by luck or providence to go through some of those traditional initiations of difficulty, right? It happens on accident. And then Mm. we find ourselves, uh, usually, uh, you know, like me at the beginning of our middle age, looking around saying, where are the fathers? Where are the mothers? How do I steward this and we feel this sense of lostness. So yeah. this this uh, this cultural issue demands the, the demands the wilderness. But it's you asked why, and that's the why I think we don't mm. have people who can see the wilderness for what it is a crucible. Yeah. We don't have people who can see times of human difficulty and g- jump up and down and get excited and say, "You have been invited by God to come to your own transformation. Let's show mm. up together. I'm going to show you how." We don't have people who have maps or even compasses. They just have fear. So the first instinct when somebody hits the big crisis of their life is for the pastors and the parents and the friends to all rush in and fix it, to Mm -hmm. put bandages on the wounds, to give uh, little pills to make it better, 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 better. We protect this reputation. We protect this structure from falling apart when the truth is they need to spend time hungry. They yeah. need to spend time lost. They need they need a guide who can say, you'll be okay, but get ready. Yeah, this up. will feel like hell. Yeah. And that crucible of wilderness produces work that can't be done any other way. Um, so that's a lot. That's a lot. But does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I have a follow-up because 
Um, last guest I had on was Kent Dobson, who took Rob Bell's spot when Rob left Mars Hill and, and Grand Rapids. And I said, Kent, what one book is rocking your world right now? And he said, it's a book called Iron John, a book about men. And so I bought Great. it and read it. Robert and, Bly. Yeah, Robert Amazing writer. For, I never heard of him, never heard the book. And there's early on a deep conviction about the need for young people. Now, again, this book specifically about men yeah. in this topic. But he said, you, kids need their grandparents around. Like, dads are cool, but you, you, know, you need the grandparents around to provide narrative and wisdom and yeah. take the kid out fishing and show them how to do stuff that they just don't get from yeah. dad. And it made me mm-hmm. think, too, about how in much of the North American institutional church— um, we have done a good job of separating, but I almost wonder if discipleship actually should skip a generation between, like, the, you know, the the the, mm-hmm. the teenager should be mentored by the by the seniors. Yeah. I worked in an institutional church up to about a year ago, and it and while we would say we're a family, everything was different. It's like, no, they have their service. They don't want to come to contemporary. They don't like the music. They don't like this. You young people don't like the choir. So no, you stay here. You stay here. Mm-hmm. And we didn't force this crossbreeding, um, which I think is actually necessary for spiritual development. Hmm. And so I'm curious, how do we, how do we reclaim that? Like, how do hmm. I, who's 36 years old yeah. and gone through some crap, I yeah. feel like I've lived in a wilderness for the last, you know, yeah. for most of my life. How do I, how do I turn that? How do we develop people that at 60, 70 years old have war wounds that go, yeah. If if that's not there now, how do we how do we cl- reclaim that? By doing the work. Um, I'm so glad you brought up Iron John. I'm so glad you brought up Robert Bly. Um, you know, I'm a poet. If you ask me at the end of the day, like what I want to be known for, it's um, it's as a poet. And Robert mm. Bly is my greatest influence in oh, some wow. small way. I would love to be one day compared to him in terms of the type of work I'm doing, not the skill sure. with which I'm doing it, but the type of work I'm doing. Mm. Um, and he and others, including Richard Rohr and Bill Plotkin, who do specifically men's work, questions sure. and issues, talk a lot about initiation and talk a lot about um, the stages of human growth and development, not in terms of years, uh, but in terms of um, basically initiation into a mm. new facet of yourself. So the good news is the human soul is made by God to want and long to become itself, to Mm. grow into itself. The good news is that the book of Revelation has at the end of it, um, this image of Christ saying to the one who overcomes, I will give a white stone on which is written a new name that nobody Mm. knows except me and the person holding it. And what what that means is that there's something about you, Heath, and about me, Paul, that's so essential that it's the great secret of our existence that can only be shared between God and you. Hmm. It's incommunicable to other people. It's the big, happy, holy secret of your existence. And the promise is that if we overcome, that will be given to us. And what that refers to, I think, is that if we are able to make it through the struggle that is life in the world, Hmm. that is life in the world system, our souls, nurtured by, redeemed by, captained and called by Jesus the promise stands that we will find that new name. That's the Mm. hope that's there. In the mess, right? You're 36, I'm 34. Mm. In the mess of our present circumstances, um, we have to do the best we can. We are being asked to do more with fewer resources for soul in that way than Mm. any of the previous generations have. When Robert Bly wrote Iron John in the 90s, and he talked about grandparents mentoring their grandkids. Well, undoubtedly in his mind, he had his grandparents in, in, in view, right? Sure. And just given the ages, they were raised um, in essentially pre-industrialized America when there mm. were these social, uh, cultural, familial bonds that essentially yeah. were, were beginning to break, but they were essentially an intact nature-based culture. The The country was founded on the farm. Hmm. Right now, the country is founded on digital consumerism. Yep. Disembodied buying, constant buying. Hmm. And the basic units have so broken down that 
my grandparents were people of soul who in many ways gave me the language and initiatory structures, right? But yeah. it's uh, it's different for my kids, yeah, right? Absolutely. It's different for those, for the baby boomers. So mm. we can look around us and without any generational animosity, I want to leave that out. Um, but I can look at the boomers around and I can say, you have nothing. I want to pass on to my kids. Maybe, mm. maybe as individuals you do, but not as a generation. Yeah. I'm going to have to man up and do better. I don't need your permission. I don't need your um, blessing. I would love it, yeah. but I need to find what is life giving. And to do that, I'm going to have to go back probably at least a century. Hmm. And I have to think about the work of my life as stewarding my crises as growing into that new name, as overcoming these massive historical shifts in culture yeah. uh, for the sake of my children, God willing, my grandchildren, God willing, my great-grandchildren. Hmm. And that process is very hard, but it's also unbelievably freeing sure. and unbelievably holy to say, Spirit, maybe this is part of why I'm here now. Hmm. Maybe this is not an accident that I was born when I was born. Maybe for such a time as this, to quote the often uh, pirated Esther phrase. Sure. Um, but that's what I think. We're hmm. just going to have to make a new culture. We're yeah. going to have to do it. And that starts with you and it starts with me and that starts with your listeners and that starts with our families. Hmm. A new culture arises when... You know, I gather along with a, a close friend, um, guys to read books, just men to read yeah. books, uh, mostly around bonfires a couple times a year. Hmm. We read good books. We talk about it. Um, we laugh and cry and drink beer and crack crude <laughs> jokes and just talk, talk, right? And that's yeah. culture. And, yeah. and in 40 years, if God willing, we're still alive and we're all sitting around in our 70s, I have to believe that we will have something. Maybe it's just one thing, but one damn thing that we can hand on to our kids. Pardon my yeah. language there. No, you're fine. Who doesn't like that stuff? One one beautiful thing yeah. that we can hand on to our kids. And wouldn't that be mm. worth a life? Wouldn't that be worth giving my life and consecrating my life to the way of Jesus to find that one treasure that I can say, maybe in a hundred or a thousand years, this will grow into something that will yeah. help replace that's, what has that's been beautiful, lost. man. So that's my yeah. answer to your question. I, I mean, I want to do that. <laughs> yeah. Come, yeah. Come along. It's a, we'll, it's we'll, a beautiful. We'll it. it is beautiful. Yeah, uh, get me on the also... invite for the bonfire because I'd love it. <laughs> Great. All right. We'll do it. A hundred percent. I seriously will. But um, yeah. it's also really stark and discouraging. Um, yeah, I, uh, yeah, I, I wrote this poem. It'll be coming out in my upcoming collection, Bower Lodge. It's called my sons. Um, mm. and it's essentially just a heart cry for, for my sons. I, I have three kids, two of them are boys. Yeah. And, um, it, the, the poem begins, my sons, this is a bitter time when you have come of age, the crow pulls foil from the earth. The rain is mixed with ash. The work is more than ever needed, but less help shall we get with it than any of our fathers. And the basic mm. idea is looking around at the apocalypse of modern life, yeah. the hollowness of contemporary life, the empty charade that passes here and yeah. feeling desolation. God, I feel desolate sometimes. Yeah, me too. Um, and, and it's taxing, right? Because you, because enough of that leads to hopelessness. So there also yes. there has to be a sense of like the ship sinking, but coast guards on their way. Yeah, you know I mean, <laughs> well, ships sinking. Uh, yes, but the missing piece there, and I think we come back to the power of prophets here, is consecrated mm. and holy anger. There is, mm. a, there is a holy anger that should come for us when we look at what we've been given, especially culturally as Christians, mm. uh, as Christians in the West, when we look at what we've been given and it, it's all painted up, it's all commercialized, it's all branded as this wonderful thing and it's totally empty, it's totally hollow, there's nothing human or good or yeah. beautiful left. And we hold it and we look at it and we say, really, is this all? that my soul is worth? Is this all that my life on earth is worth to, to 
watch endless iterations of inane Marvel superheroes and buy things on Amazon and tweet my opinions. And then at the end of my life, look back and say, what the hell was that? Is that yeah. it? Yeah. And that's what the spirit wants to anger in us in a holy way to say, mm. you are better. You are stronger. You are deeper. You can wake up in yeah. the name of Christ and speak something to yeah. this world that so desperately needs it. Mm. And um, I love that. That's the cry that I, that I feel, the heart message that I feel. And it will take me most of my life to learn what that feels like and means. Yeah. But that's okay because if I can turn and give that to somebody else at the end of it, wow, I will yeah. die so happy. And along the way, we simply are living in this in this world that calls those things out of us if we have the eyes to see, if we have the ears to hear, and if mm -hmm. we are willing to become smaller in order to grow, just yeah. like Christ did. It's all the same logic. It's all the, the beautiful ecology of spirit and soul. It's all the paradoxes that link together. Um, just like mm. you would see in any natural system, the ocean, the woods, <laughs> the body of Jesus, the, yeah. the movement of, of tribes and nations. Uh, oh, man, it's, it's beautiful. It's it is. Beautiful. Well, th I think you've, you've, uh, one thing I'm, I'm appreciative of, and I just got one last question, but one thing I want to say I'm appreciative of is I feel like it's the fact that you have done the hard work of developing language, um, in your own life for however long you've done it, you're able to say some of these things in a way that is is just beautiful. So I appreciate that. And thank you for taking the years to develop that craft and keep honing that. Because um, it does, it puts, it puts so much word, it puts so much meaning to the things that I've been feeling that I can't figure out how to say. Hmm. And, uh, and so I appreciate that. Well, and, we're in it together. And yeah. that's the, that's the great excitement of this time in history. We have yeah. this sense of tectonic movement between continents and cultures and generations. Everything's roiling and boiling. Uh, it's mm. all coming to the surface. Um, that anger is coming out and we're entering a fire time, a transformation yeah. time, a, a massive time of uh, great terror and great joy. And it's a pleasure to be here with yeah. you, Heath, and with your listeners. Like we all need to just raise our heads for a moment above the fray and look at each other, make eye contact and say, you see in this too? Yeah, it's good we're here right now. Okay, let's go. This isn't about winning this or that issue. This isn't about this or that societal change. It's so much deeper than that. Yeah. It's not about better opinions. It's about changing the way humans live in the world and finding a sanctified way to be in the name of Jesus. That's the dream and promise of the body of Christ. Hmm. Uh, and as we individually wake up to that, good grief, it, it yeah. becomes so beautiful. Uh, we, we truly join the work that we were made for. Um, we become consecrated and mm. priestly and prophetic and um, so good. just a small echo and image of, of what we really are. Okay, last question, and I'll let you go. Um, and I like asking this question just because it's, it's kind of open-ended. But if you knew that in three minutes from now you were going to die, and it's, it's grim, but what would be your last words? Like, what would, what would you say to people listening to the show? Would it be like, oh, go read this book or study this or learn this? Or like, if you had three minutes to give your last piece of advice to the world, what would it be? Hmm. Hmm. No pressure. <laughs> yeah. It's a good question. I just love it. Cause it, it always, people have such different, I mean, sometimes it's, Hey, read this book. Sometimes it's watch this movie. Sometimes it's, stop taking yourself so seriously. Sometimes it's, it's, it's just so cool. Cause it goes, every, I mean, I never know yeah. what's going to come out of it. I think what I would say is I have been so happy. I have mm. been so happy. And in the, in the picture of my life in the whole picture of my life that just carries weight. So that's what I'd say. Mm. I have been so happy, but if it's to turn to somebody else, uh, it would be, be yourself, um, mm. your true self, not the facade, not anything else. Discover what it means to be yourself in Jesus. 
Because that's the point. That's the point of the redemption. That's the point of the sanctification. That's the point of being sealed with the spirit of Christ, the Messiah. Hmm. You get to be yourself. You're no one's slave. You're no one's uh, blood bag, so to speak. You're not an Amazon account. You're not a Facebook profile. Hmm. Be yourself. Um, Yeah. So good. I think thank you for I'm that say, Heath. yeah be yourself i love that it's so simple but it's there it is it, it, but it's the hardest thing in the world to do <laughs> it really it's is like, it really like is this. and that's on purpose but yeah. that's a conversation for a different day <laughs> well again thank you so much for 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 you know there's authors that i read sometimes and i go they've put in the work and they've done a good academic job and then there's authors i read and go I don't, not much substance but man wordsmith yes and then there's you who I just read this book and went, this guy put effort into it. This guy mm-hmm. slaved over each word. I mean, he wrestled and he found better ways to write it. And he cut the, and I just, I, there was times where I imagined just you writing at your desk and going, nah, I could do better. Nah, I could do better. I could do better. And, and I think it shows because it is a beautiful book. Um, and even this conversation has been great. So thank you for being with me today. It's really kind of you to have me, Heath. Hopefully it won't be the last time. Let's do this again. Again, that's Paul J. Pastor. What an amazing interview. His new book is uh, Face of the Deep, and you can get it anywhere that you want, and it is incredible. But if you want to check out more about him, you can visit him on Twitter at Paul J. Pastor or his website, pauljpastor.com. Also want to let you know, uh, that I'm doing some speaking stuff for pastors uh, during COVID. So if you're interested in kind of hearing a message, I'm happy to do it for free for your congregation. If you just go to heathhollandsby.com forward slash speaking. Again, that's heathhollandsby.com forward slash speaking. Uh, you can sign up for a time to chat and we can talk through uh, kind of what I'm thinking for you. If you haven't yet left a review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to this podcast, that would be super helpful. Um, it helps me get this out to different people. Like there's something about the algorithms behind the scenes that, I don't know, these companies have built in and they see that you like it and write a recommendation. Then they'll open it up to some newer groups of people that haven't heard of Ethan Pursuit yet. So I would love that. That would be super helpful for me. Obviously this show is free, uh, but that would be a great way as a gift for you back to me for putting these on so that I can get this out in front of some more people. Again, thanks for joining me today. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Heath in Pursuit podcast. We look forward to being back with you next week. For more information on the various works of Heath Hollandsby, please visit heathinpursuit.com.